cafeteria and what's moving there, but it's my way to do it. It's ugly now. And again, again, we're doing it a blessing that never was mentioned Never. Not where's dad, not is he coming, not she doesn't mention dad, she doesn't mention the house. Which which has been really because Laura had made decisions to sell her house. It was torn down and all those things and she was not having a decision. So all that transpired. 
Okay.
Good morning. Good to see you out on this beautiful Sunday morning. Snow coming down. If you look at your announcements, we have a couple of things to look at. Uh, again, envelopes in the offering box. Contact number. Days of praise and acts and facts are here. Is this current? That's January. And that's December. So I don't think February's here yet. Anyway, make use of those. I'm trying here. New new mask, glasses falling off. Uh, winter class this year. It's going to be held in Ohio. That is Camp Palmer Lodge in Fayette, Ohio. Tim Borton. So I will post this. That is coming February 26th through 28th. So if I'm not mistaken, that'd be about a month. And it's coming up, coming up quick. Grade 7 through college age. Um, Giles Heron and Bill Kiger are going to speak. And I don't know if that's a misprint or not, but it says cost $10. You can't go to many weekends for $10. So... Ten dollars. <laughs> I suspect that the SGBA is helping along with that a little bit. So, all right. Uh, what else? Anything I've missed? Our scripture for meditation this morning is from Romans, the first chapter. Read eighteen through twenty-seven.
and ask the Lord to bless our service. Dale, can I ask you this morning? We take your red hymnal this morning, take the Trinity and turn to number 500 in the red. 500.
Thank you. You may be seated. Looking for a favorite hymn this morning. Blustery, cold, last Sunday of January morning. Anyone? Jess. I think it's in the brown. Trust. No, no I'm not. You look in the red, I'll look in the brown. Three forty nine in the brown. Three forty nine. Do you have it in the red? In the brown. Is the red better? Okay. <laughs> Let's do three forty nine in the brown. And we have a reason for this this one this morning. Beside that it's a fabulous hymn. to him. 
Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and we're reading verses 18 to 25, 1772 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is full but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? It's in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was and miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Father in heaven, may you add your blessing to this holy and inspired reading of your word. Amen. We take your red hymnal once again and turn number 486. Four, eight, the red.
Could be a little higher, but I don't know how to do it. Right okay. We have been looking in this pre-study before the Passion series <clears throat> at some of the basic truths. The fall of man, and consequently the fall of the whole human race. For in Adam, the scripture says, and killed the whole human race towards God by their willful, defiant, rebellion to God's command against God and their progeny, their offspring from that point on became sinners. Now this was not a slip or a stumble on the pathway of life, but it was a plunge of body and soul into the abyss of hell. Think of, of the account in Genesis, Adam and Eve were created perfect people. Bearing the image and likeness
human beings created with free will, and they used their freedom to bring the race into the body. from Adam and Eve onward, are born dead towards God. And with a sin nature, God, he seeks us. We have a lot of chatter these days about seeker-friendly churches. And by that they mean people coming in from the community that are seeking God. Well, it's really the opposite. God is seeking people. Probably the most puzzling dilemma to son concerning the gospel. If people are dead towards God, that is, if they are dead, we know that the gospel message is a spiritual message. It's demanding response of faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of sins. But if people are dead spiritually, how is it such a message going to help them? One ear and out the other. Isn't it useless exercise The God of this age is a reference to Satan. Blind men have no perception to hear and understand it. Wow, this is getting very difficult. Sin caused Adam's descendants to lose their ability to relate to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit. Unambiguous. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come. Because they are spiritually understood. I want you to note the verbs. Does not. That's a decision of the will. Cannot understand them. Because of the absence of the Holy Spirit. Now if we have. world but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us so some have the spirit of God some don't chapter 2 verse 24 so they're not likely to listen to the gospel when it's preached. 
gospel. They can't understand it in the end, so what's the use? They show by Seems strange to us that a person can be alive, like able to talk, eat, go to work. Relationship, a soul relationship, not just one of the head, though the head is involved as well. All that being said, we come to today's message, and I ask this question if this is true, if they're dead spiritually, why do the As we come to today's study, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us as we try to understand. In the words of preaching. I don't have anything to say. I, to, I can't give any good platitudes or spirit. But your word is, is the word that lightens our hearts to the will of God. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It was his wonderful psalm, Psalm 119. Just verse after verse, declaring the value of the word of God. Help us to see that today. We're not going to be saved apart from believing your word. Your word is truth. You don't lie. In fact, the scripture says it's impossible for God to lie. We can lie. We even lie to ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to be discerning this day and give us the truth of your word. Show us Jesus. Grant us faith. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. I'm asking the question this morning, why preach to the dead? And I say that because the scripture says we're all dead in trespasses and sins. Not physically. We're alive. You can hear my voice today. You can respond and well, and so we say, you, I don't feel dead. Well, no, you don't feel dead because it's dead towards God is different than just being dead physically. So I ask the question, why should we preach to the dead if we're dead spiritually? Let me give four reasons. Number one, we preach or witness to the spiritually dead because the Lord of the church commands us to do that. You say, oh no, that's simplistic. What a cop-out. That's no answer. Well, I would suggest to you that it is the answer to this dilemma. What we try to do as believers in the sovereignty of God is to use our understanding of the decrees of God to live our lives. When we do this, we switch from thus saith the Lord as the guiding principle by which we live to human logic. We don't want to do that. The Corinthian church was prone to this. We're reading from there, from the letter that Paul wrote to them. And Paul admits that the message of the cross is foolishness, he says, verse 18, to those who are perishing. 
Well, they're perishing. It's, yeah, it's, it's silly. But to those being saved, it isn't foolish at all. It's the power of God in operation. Nonetheless, the Corinthians were reevaluating, reevaluating the methodology. Why preach something to people which they think is foolish? Can't we find something a little less of a turnoff? Can't we reason with people? Can't we use some carefully crafted arguments to prove the merit of the Christian faith? I mean, maybe, just maybe, if people saw the rationale behind the cross, they wouldn't be so put off by it. Paul's point is that there already is a rationale behind preaching the cross to people who think it is foolish. In other words, God has reasoned it out. There's the rationale. God has an agenda in place in the preaching of the gospel. What is that agenda? Please tell us, God, why should we preach the gospel to people who don't want to hear it? Verse 19, if you're looking at your text, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. That's human wisdom, that is. But we preach Christ crucified. If I can paraphrase for you, Paul is saying, the Jews want miracles to satisfy. The Greeks want human reasoning to satisfy theirs. But God gives them neither. God gives both groups a good dose of the preaching of the cross. And yes, it causes the Jews to stumble in unbelief. And it causes the Greeks to be evil and condescending. Verse 23. But to the call of God, the preaching of the cross gives them Christ the Savior. Verse 30, who becomes to us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Think of it this way. While the Jews are stumbling and falling, and the unchurched pagans are being haughty and critical, God is saving a people from both groups right under their noses. And in spite of their protests that Jesus and cross preaching isn't very sophisticated. This is why Paul says in verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In other words, God's getting his agenda done while the world passes by as scoffers and as protesters. God's agenda includes, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have to come to see that God is God and you ain't it. 
God is the ruler of your life and you are not. You are subject to God. He is not subject to you. You must give an account to God in the day of judgment. He is not going to answer to you. It's a hard concept in our world when everything is so wishy-washy with regard to God. This is why Paul says in verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than strength. God's getting his agenda done while the world passes by as jokes and protesters. And God's agenda includes, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God out of his salvation, regardless of your mockery, your jokes, your put-downs, your unbelief. Now let me apply these principles to our question. Okay, why preach the gospel then to the dead? I mean, they're dead spiritually. They're not going to hear anything spiritual. The answer, first answer, and I'm going to give you a number of reasons, but the first answer is simply because God has commanded us to do so. But if we know and believe the doctrine of sovereign election, (coughs) excuse me, that God decreed before the creation of the world and predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, Ephesians 1 verse 5. If we know and believe that all men without exception are dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2 verse 1, and are therefore unable to respond to any spiritual message of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, The tendency is for our human logic to kick in and conclude, well, if election is true, people are going to be saved with or without the preaching of the cross because God has decreed it so, and because people are dead spiritually, preaching the cross is inevitable because they won't accept it, they can't believe it. End of story. What we have done Conclusion is what the Corinthians were doing. What were they doing? Well, it's a little different angle, but it's the same thing. We have used human logic to determine our course of conduct. We think we have God figured out. We think we have salvation figured out. Salvation is solely the work of God's decree. So preaching the cross is not necessary. That's our logic kicking in. I would suggest to you that this is to use the decrees of God against God and as an out for our own indolence. The God who elects sinners and calls them to himself will be We will be adopted into his family, but also elected not only the means or methods whereby that's going to be accomplished. Okay, what's the method? The message of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. 
verse 21. The foolishness of what was preached believe. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him. Ashamed of the gospel, writes Paul, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Then for the Gentile. Now what's going on here is this. Human logic wants to say, if election is true, then human responsibility, and so is human response. But the gospel of Christ demands election is true, and so is human responsibility. Therefore, none of the elect are ever saved apart from a right response to the gospel of the cross. We preach to the spiritually dead, because the Bible teaches both election and human responsibility. And it teaches them as parallel. Supporting truths which do not intersect and do not cancel each other out. God has commanded us to preach both. We have it in his word. We're not to logically penetrate all of this and say, well, how does this work? Just We preach to the spiritually dead because the preaching of the word of God brings spiritual enablement to the dead. See, I thought you said that the man without the spirit of God does not accept the things of the spirit of God and that he cannot understand them. Well, I didn't say that. God said it, chapter 2, verse 14. But if that's true, then what good is it to preach the gospel to people who have no capacity to receive it? They have no appreciation for its value. There's that human logic raising its head again. See what we do? We begin to second-guess God. Well, Lord, now wait a minute. If they can't understand, if they can't hear, why should I preach to them? We give the gospel to the spiritually dead because through the preaching of the word of God, faith and repentance are granted by God to his chosen people. When people talk about faith in Jesus, they approach it from the standpoint that the faith originates in the hearer. Thus it's his or her faith in Christ which reaches out to take hold of the Savior. But reaching out and taking hold of Christ is wanting God and his salvation. And we've already noted that no one seeks for God. No one wants him. Not the God of the Bible. It's even more devastating. Not only do people not want the God of the Bible, they despise him. And they posture themselves by their sin and willfulness as his enemies. Now, I'm not making this up. Listen to God's evaluation of sinners who are devoid of his spirit. Here's how he describes them. The list of results of the fall of man is found in Romans 1. And lists, among other things, 
I'm reading scripture. God haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Verse 29. They're kind of in your face with God, see? Being deliberately defiant to his holy requirements for his creatures. Truly we are God-haters and faithless. That's what Paul is saying. Again, Romans 5, verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. If you don't think you're you don't think you're ungodly you're missing the truth of the gospel verse 10 romans 5 we were god's enemies so i've never thought of myself as an enemy of god well that's part of the deception of the evil one second timothy 3 speaks of people as ungrateful unholy not lovers of good Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Doesn't that describe our society? Let me read it again. Ungrateful, unholy, not lovers of good. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Romans 8 states those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. The mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Wow. Bottom line here is, you're going to get no faith in Christ out of this kind of a person. And there's no other kind of person. (laughs) This is who we are. This is the Bible's description of how far Adam's fall into sin affected the human heart and the human mind. It has made us God-haters, faithless, in-the-face-of-God kind of people with open sin, ungodly, unloving towards God and his avowed enemy. There's no submission to the word of God. There's no will to do that. No ability to do so. No will, no ability. So, from where does the faith to take hold of Christ in salvation, where does that come? Well, it's God's gift to his chosen people. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. We've got to learn to read the scripture carefully. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Okay, next phrase. And this, closest antecedent is faith. This faith is not from yourselves, It's the gift of God, not by works, not your own faith, so that no one can boast. 
Oh, I've heard a lot of boasting by some who oppose the choice of God. They've said to me, but I had to believe, I had to believe, I had to believe. It's dangerous ground to think that faith in Christ is your contribution to your salvation of God. It shows you don't understand grace. Again, Paul to the Thessalonian believers, from the big, he writes, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that's regeneration, and through belief in the truth. Faith, the product of life, is the work of the Spirit of God, the originator of it all. We come alive through the Spirit by God's choice, and faith is the evidence that life in God is there. We do not believe first and gain life as a result of our faith. We have life, and in that life we exhibit faith. Because the faith that's being talked about is a spiritual entity not your faith. I've heard it so preached so many times that it makes me sick. Well, that means he, you have faith to sit on the chair. And if you sit on the chair, you have faith that it will support your weight. What an anemic definition of spiritual faith. The faith that God gives is a faith to trust in the power of Christ, the power of God to save sinners apart from anything that they have in themselves. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Antioch city, first to the Jewish in the Jewish synagogue, but then these Jews rejected the gospel message. They didn't want to hear it. So Paul said in verse 46, here's his words, Since you reject it, you Jews, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all, listen to this, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You see how it's stated? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts 14, excuse me, Acts 13, verse 46. So here are two groups of people who hear the same message at the same time, in the same place, by the mouth of the same preachers, in the same circumstances. But one group flatly rejects the gospel, while the others believe and obey. What made the difference? Paul says, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That made the the difference. Faith to apprehend the gospel is the gift of God. It is not resident faith in the sinner's heart. Titus 1 verse 1 and following talks about the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting in the hope of eternal life which God promised before the beginning of time. Galatians 3.22 says, The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. 
so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, see it wasn't in themselves, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. No capability to believe, no capability to obey. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up, says Paul, until faith should be revealed. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 2 says, Not everyone has faith. Now everyone has human faith, so he's not talking about that. Paul is, what Paul is saying is that not everyone has saving faith. What if people don't believe? Romans 3, verse 3. Paul actually <laughs> points that question out. Here's the way he says it. What if some did not have faith? Referring to the Jews of the Old Testament. He goes on to say, Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Wow, that's a great question. If they're not going to have faith in God, what is that going to ruin God's plan? Will it, will it nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. I'm still reading scripture. Let God be true and every man a liar. People's faith or lack thereof does not alter the truth of God and its work in people's hearts. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's where we need to get our eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I want you to notice that the Bible does not hesitate to call it our faith. Even though Christ is its author. Everywhere throughout the Bible, godly faith is attributed to Christian men and women with the expression, your faith. The hour you first believed. It's another phrase. But none of this nullifies the truth that saving faith is God's gift to his people. Because it's not just our human faith that's in play here. Having said all that, the same can be said for repentance. The Bible affirms that there is a repentance that men do which falls short of godly repentance. Let me read it for you. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow or repentance brings death. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. And Esau is the classic example of the ineffectiveness of worldly repentance to bring about forgiveness. Let me read it for you. It's from the book of Hebrews. Esau was called 
sexually immoral and godless, who sold his inheritance rights. And then he adds, afterwards, as you know, he wanted to inherit this blessing, but he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind. That's a definition of the word repentance. Though he sought the blessing with tears. Hebrews 12 verse 15. Worldly repentance is sorrow over the consequences of sin. It's pain. It's heartache. It's losses. That's what people are sad about when they repent. But godly repentance is sorrow over the sin itself that brought about the consequences. And the disobedience to God's word that brought about the consequences. Thus godly repentance like godly faith is the gift of God. When the Jerusalem council heard of how Cornelius, Cornelius was a Roman soldier, actually a commander. When, he heard, when they heard of Cornelius' household had come to salvation in Christ at the preaching of Peter, the scripture says, they praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles Repentance unto life. Mm. Acts 11 verse 18. So repentance is a grant or a gift from God. Like saving faith is a gift from God. Both saving faith and saving repentance are enablements from God. How does God give these gifts? Well, as it is with Cornelius, so it's with all of us. It's while they listened to the preaching of the gospel by Peter, we read, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, and the Jews present were astonished, I'm reading scripture, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Wow. Acts 10, verse 44 and following. And Peter had to defend himself for doing this because the Jews didn't quite understand that. What are you do? What, what's God doing here? Why is he getting the same, giving the same Holy Spirit to these people that he did to us? And Peter's defense was this. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? What's he saying? He's saying God did it. I didn't do it. And the Jerusalem council, which consisted of all the apostles that came together, drew the conclusion that God's gift of faith and repentance unto life was for all who are saved, including the Gentiles. Paul says essentially the same thing. Let me read it for you. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Implication? Not many. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. 
And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 16 and 17. Not all who hear the gospel believe. That's true. But all who believe have heard and obeyed the gospel. That's also true. No one, no one is ever saved. No one ever comes to saving faith. No one ever repents of sin apart from hearing the word of God preached. This is why we preach to dead people. It's the word of Christ that brings the dead to life. When Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and cried, Lazarus, come out! Apart from the personalized nature of his message, what was it that Lazarus heard in his grave? Well, he heard the word of the Lord and sovereign of the universe. And when God commands, life follows. Well, the Bible is no less the word of Christ than if Jesus were speaking in person. Thirdly, we preach to the dead because none of the gospel promises are a tease or disingenuous. When we think of all those broad invitations of the gospel, whosoever will may come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Many, many more. These invitations are not a cruel game of God's, on God's part. They comprise a true call to sinners to come to Christ, a genuine promise of eternal life to all who respond. And, as we have just noted, these invitations are part of the gospel message designed to change hearts. But what we must never do as we harmonize these different truths is to make assumptions for these general calls of the gospel by asserting that the call itself means that the sinner is able on his own to respond. The calls are genuine, the promises are real, but the response is still the work of God. For example, Romans 10 verse 9 gives this invitation. It's broad. Let me read it to you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? That's pretty broad, isn't it? But how is the spiritually dead going to acknowledge the lordship of Christ and his resurrection when lordship and resurrection are two of the main stumbling blocks to his acceptance of Christ? Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say... 
Jesus is Lord, and mean it, of course, is the idea. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. First John 4, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. So the call is genuine. If you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in his resurrection, you will be saved. But only those who have the Spirit of God working in their hearts will exhibit this kind of faith. Jesus put it this way. You want it from the words of Christ. John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life, he said. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. It's a genuine call by Jesus to come to him, to have the thirst and hunger of their souls satisfied. But there was no positive response. Jesus explains, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes, that's the broad invite. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So here Jesus links answering his invitation to the work of God, more forcefully stated in verse 44 of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Enablement comes from God. And that's what he says exactly in verse 65, same chapter. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Well, how does God do that? Verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The words I have spoken to you are Spirit and our life. We preach to dead people because all of the gospel invitations are genuine. If people come, Christ will not turn them away. If they believe in Jesus as Savior, He will save them from their sin. If they confess His Lordship, He will take up rule and reign in their lives and lead them in the paths of righteousness. All of those promises are true and genuine. And then finally, we preach to the dead because no gospel presentation is a waste of time or energy or misdirected effort. God's word always accomplishes God's intended purpose. I think we make some wrong assumptions about this at times. We assume that God, in calling us to preach, always has in mind the salvation of the hearer. That's the way we think. Jonah assumed this. That is why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. You remember? He hated the Ninevites. He didn't want God to be merciful to them. (coughs) And on this occasion, Jonah guessed right. God was merciful to the Ninevites. But consider another man, Elijah. 
Elijah was expecting a great revival as a result of the contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. They lost. God won. What else could there be than that the people would wholeheartedly turn back to the Lord in repentance and faith? But that didn't happen. Instead, Elijah found himself hot-footing across the desert with Jezebel's hitmen hard on his heels. So Elijah ended up in a blue slump, discouraged for the lack of revival. God, you didn't save anybody. What was all that business? Why did I go to Mount Carmel? Why did I preach to these people? What Jonah and Elijah and all of us must keep in mind is what Paul said to the Corinthians. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. Okay. And secondly, among those who are perishing. Oh, wait a minute. We are the fragrance of the knowledge of him. We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Well, in what way? To the one, we are of the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task, says Paul? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men that are sent from God. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 and following. What's he saying? He's saying this. Sometimes the word of God hardens men's hearts instead of softening their hearts. Hmm. I mean, we'd like it to soften their hearts so that they would believe in God and accept his forgiveness in Christ. But Paul is saying that doesn't always happen. Sometimes preaching the gospel to people makes them mad. Sometimes it hardens their heart against God. It doesn't soften their hearts. Every time Aaron and Moses, remember this account, every time Aaron and Moses confronted Pharaoh with the command of God, it was like another nail in Pharaoh's coffin. It made Pharaoh more angry, more determined, never to let Israel out of captivity. I'll never let him go. The gospel is this way as well. For some, it's the seed planted and watered by the witness of the word. And God causes it to grow and to bring forth fruit unto eternal life. For others, it just makes them mad. Right? It's like casting pearls before swine. There's no reason for such anger, but it makes them mad. They'll be turned off. They'll slam the door in your face. They'll refuse to have you in their homes. No matter, God is doing his work 
and his word will not return to him without accomplishing his intended purpose. Every sermon you hear, every Bible track you read, every witness from a Christian family member, every reminder in gospel print is either softening your heart or calcifying it like stone. It's doing one or the other. Either way, God's going to get the glory. Say, what do you mean? Well, if you melt and repent and believe the gospel by coming to Christ, you will be to the glory of God's gracious salvation. Praise the Lord. I hope that's what happens. But I got to tell you, if you perish in unbelief and stubbornness and rejection of Christ, you will also be to the praise of of God's righteous judgment. You never, you never frustrate the will of God. Never. He will have his way with you, be it saving grace or condemnation and judgment. So which is it going to be? Lord, we thank you for your word. It's hard on us at times, but so true. You're going to tell us the truth, even if we don't want to hear it. I'm so thankful for that. Give us an understanding of your truth. And I'm praying that your word will create in us a saving heart, a saving faith. Lord Jesus, please do that for us. We can't do it and we won't do it. But the Spirit of God can and will, if that's your plan for each one here. I pray that it is. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your scriptures. It's so revealing, humbling to us. It doesn't leave us a lot of room to go down many other paths. There are no other paths. We're either going to believe what God has said about his salvation and coming to Christ, his Savior, the love of his Son. We're going to come through the Son or we're not going to come at all. Didn't Jesus teach us that he's the door of the sheep pen? And that's the only way to get in. You try some other way, what did Jesus say? He said, then you're a thief and a robber. You're trying to come through a window, a hole in the wall. You're trying to circumlocute God's way. Oh, Lord, help us not to do that. Why would we want to do that? You have opened the door for us through Jesus, who says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through him. Give us that faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is in Trinity, the red hymnal, 495. This is a message of hope. I like the way it says, No, not despairingly. Are you despaired this morning? Did the preaching bother you? 
Did it upset you? Did you say, oh, what's the use? Oh, I, there's no hope for me? Is that where you're at? <laughs> the hymn writer says, no, not despairingly come I to thee. No, not distrustingly bend I the knee. Yeah, sin has gone over me. Yet is this still my plea? Jesus has died. That's your hope. That's my hope. That's the only hope for us as believers. Jesus has died. Shall we stand together, please?
no matter how black the sin, no matter how much the sin. This hymn teaches us to rely upon the blood of Christ that covers all of our sin. If he died for your sin, then you don't have to die for your sin. But you have to trust him that he did die for your sins. You have to do you have to see yourself as a sinner in need of Christ stepping in, dying for you, being gracious to you. If you take the position, I'm okay with God just the way I am. The Bible has some bad news for you. There is none righteous, not even one, says the scriptures. Well, if we're not righteous, how are we going to make it in front of a righteous God whose standard is impeccable? We need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. I pray you'll come to him today if you do not know him. Lord, we thank you for your word. It tells us things that are hard to accept at times. Things that are Strike at our conscience. Things that say to us that uh, we're not in such great shape spiritually before God. That there's a judgment that we are going to have to face. And if we don't have the blood of Christ covering us, hiding us as it were, atoning for us, for our sins, then we're in a bad way. Then we're going to have to stand before you with no help. I pray, Lord, that we would see the urgency of coming to Christ. How do we do that? We confess our sins. We trust Jesus to be the one who forgives our sins and died for them. God isn't letting us off. He's paying for our sins in Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. God paying for his people's sins. But we have to believe it. We have to accept it. And if we're going to stand before God with our fists drawn and being stubborn and rebellious, then we're going to reap what Satan reaped, cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and wailing. Our Lord, we just thank you for the grace of God. Even in our sinful state, you found a way to save us through the sacrifice of your son. Who does a thing like that? God did for his people. And he commands us to believe and obey. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.